Do we see a problem here? Do we see a problem? Who owns YouTube? Google. YouTube controls Google. They're the same entity. They decide what is going to be searched and revealed in their search engines. This is policy. This is how they're trying to control what you see and what you don't see. And this is dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because 95% of millennials use YouTube only as their source of information. 95% of millennials use YouTube only as their source of information. So now you've got one entity, the biggest entity in the world, Google, controlling what you can't and can't see. They won't take my videos down, but they won't allow them to be monetized. And when those ads run under them, that everybody complains and bitches about, oh, you got so many ads. Yeah, for every 10,000 views, I get a dollar. <laughs> Hello? So it's not for the money I'm doing this. This is a volunteer show, literally, at this point. Make a donation. I need your help. We're on the air. I'm not sure I didn't get an oral cue again, but we'll go with that, okay? Showtime. Welcome to the show. Welcome, everybody. Sit down, get in your most comfy chair, get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice outside the studio. Well, it's a foggy night, to put it mildly. You can't see past your hand. It is really that foggy here. Weird, weird weather. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were freezing here. There was snow coming down. Now, today, it was 7 degrees Celsius. We're looking at that spot. I don't know. I'm going to translate that to American. 47, 48. It is weird weather. Weird, weird weather. It's a perfect night. It's creepy out there. Get in that comfy chair. Take this time for yourself. Now, we're going to continue with the third part of Ted Sorensen in his own words, talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. If you missed the first two shows, they're there in the archives. They're also there on Google. Just Google Brent Holland, Ted Sorensen. You're going to come up with them. This is the third and final segment. And this is the juice, folks. This is what we've been leading up to. We had talked about when I went down to New York City in September of 2010 to interview three Nobel Peace Laureates when I was there. I requested a meet and greet very quickly with Ted Sorensen because I knew he lived there. He lived in Manhattan. That's where I was. So much to my surprise, it was permitted. <laughs> Lori Morris, who I am eternally grateful to, set up that meeting with him. I was told to go and meet him at his Manhattan apartment, expecting just to shake his hand, and he invited me in. Can you imagine meeting Ted Sorensen? This is a personal hero of mine. And if you've been listening to the last two shows, you'll realize why. Ted Sorensen, folks, was the man that saved the world for real. At the most crucial time in the history of mankind, the most crucial 13 days when we were that close, that close to not being here because of nuclear holocaust, it was Ted Sorensen that saved the day. And we're going to get into the juice of that in just a second. So we sat down. Thank goodness I had brought my tape recorder, my video recorder, and I videotaped his literally, virtually, his last final interview. Now, why did that turn out to be his final interview? Because just a few weeks later, he passed away. And he unloaded, folks. He confirmed conspiracy. 
in the JFK assassination. We talked about behind the scenes things in Camelot no one has ever heard. And I'm producing a documentary based on that very video footage and some other interviews I've done with Ted. If you'd like to make a donation towards that, I would be ever grateful. If you make a donation on my website at uh, nightfrightshow.com of $100 or more, I will put your name in the credits as a producer. Yeah, this is going to be a very, very special historical historical document for all times. So, we are going to continue. So, the other thing we talked about was his speeches. Ted was responsible for all those great words and all those great speeches that President Kennedy said. It was Ted Sorensen. They had kind of a symbiotic relationship. Each one knew what the other was feeling, and Ted was able to verbalize that, put that down on paper for JFK to read. The American peace speech, the inaugural speech, Ask Not, all these wonderful, wonderful speeches, civil rights, Cuban Missile Crisis. Without Ted, none of this would have been possible. That's how important he was to the Kennedy administration. It would not have been the same thing without Ted Sorensen. Ted Sorensen was as integral to JFK's administration as producer George Martin was to the Beatles. Without George Martin producing the Beatles, they would not have had the White Album. They would not have had all those great albums uh, leading up to Abbey Road. Phenomenal producer, great ideas. Without that, JFK would not have been the same either without Ted Sorensen. So, we talked about the Bay of Pigs. What happened there was Kennedy had inherited this plan to go into the Bay of Pigs. They were setting up 1,300 ex-Cuban patriots, if you will, that wanted to go in. They believed that there would be a, a natural uprising of the population against Castro. Never happened. What they later found out, could you imagine this? The head of the CIA, Alan Dulles, hid his own personal report from Kennedy that this plan was bound to fail. Thank God Kennedy didn't send in any more American troops to back up these Cubans because it would have been seen uh, from the Soviet Union's perspective as an act of war and we would have been in a nuclear holocaust right there. So when you hear the misnomer that Kennedy failed at the Bay of Pigs and uh, he didn't supply the air support and everything else that he was supposed to, completely false. What he did was kept us out of a war. So now we return to the Cuban Missile Crisis, October 1962. What happened? The Soviets started putting nuclear missiles right into Cuba, pointed right at America. So it would take five minutes instead of 25 minutes for the missiles to hit America. There was no time to evacuate people. There was no time for retaliation response. It would have been a first strike capability. Those missiles could not be allowed to sit in Cuba because of those reasons. It just upset the whole balance of detente, if you will. All of a sudden, one side had a first strike capability that the other side didn't really have. So it was even up until then. This tilted it in the Soviets' favor, so those missiles had to be removed. Question was, how to remove them? If they went into Cuba, the Americans went into Cuba, Obviously, the Soviet unions would retaliate, probably on Berlin, and we talked about how Berlin was divided up into four superpowers. France had a quarter, Britain had a quarter, the Americans had a quarter, and the Soviet Union had a quarter. So you would see the geopolitical schemes of things just 
completely implode in Berlin, and then you're looking at war either way. So how do you stay out of a nuclear war when you've got nuclear missiles pointed right at you five minutes away offshore? And that's where we're going to go now. The juice, the letter Ted Sorensen wrote that saved mankind. Leading up to this, I was asking Ted Sorensen about another letter he had wrote, and it was a Cuban Missile Crisis speech. And Ted stopped me and he said, you know, there's another letter that I wrote that's even more important. So I responded to him. I said, okay, can we talk about that letter then? And Sorensen said, absolutely. Go right ahead, Brent. <laughs> now, you got to understand, folks, Ted, this was a little test from Ted. Now, he wanted to see if I'd actually read his book. Now, some humor interjected into the interview. I was told that if I was to interview Ted, I had to have read his book. And I did, twice. I also had read several other books on the subject and had watched many documentaries. I had done my homework myself. No support staff. I always do that, folks, for every, every show. I have no support staff. This is a volunteer gig. Okay. That was the letter. You had received conflicting letters from Khrushchev. The first letter you received was more or less him under great stress. And the CIA said, written by Khrushchev himself. The second one you received looked like it had been not written by him at all, but by the Politburo. That's their government, folks. That would be like Congress, if you will. And that was when Sorensen interrupted me and he says, or the military forum. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I said to myself, looks like I passed the test. Okay. Sorensen continues. That first letter came in Friday evening, October 26th, and yes, it was a bit emotional. It meandered all around. It was full of threats saying, if we do this, if the U.S. does anything, the Soviet Union will give us all that and more. And in addition to threats, it was full of denials. We don't have any nuclear missiles in Cuba. Well, we had the proof. We knew. We saw the photos. We have some specialists, yes, but they're not offensive weapons because we put them there for defensive reasons. And if we put them there for defensive reasons, that makes them defensive weapons. But mixed in among the threats and denials were some indications that he wanted to end this dangerous crisis also. Some hints of a quid pro quo that might enable that to take place. Sorensen continues, that letter came in Friday night and we were sitting around the cabinet table Saturday discussing how to answer it. We had at least two competing drafts in front of us, one from the State Department, one from a U.S. mission in the United Nations. And then a second letter, as you point out, came in. This one, much different in tone. And the message of that second letter was, we're not taking anything out of Cuba unless NATO, which Canada is a member of, unless NATO takes its missiles out of Turkey. We all knew that the NATO missiles in Turkey were an insult, in particular bone in the throat of Khrushchev and all the people of the Soviet Union. When they took vacations on the Black Sea on the Ukrainian side, they could look up from their fun at the beach and see those missiles in Turkey pointed toward them. Don't forget, NATO uh, folks, this is just an aside by me. Don't forget, folks, um, Turkey is a NATO partner. 
So to protect Turkey from being invaded from the Soviet Union, uh, you can draw parallels here. The Soviet Union, to protect Cuba from being invaded by the uh, Americans, put defensive nuclear weapons they claimed into Cuba. The same thing was true of NATO. They put defensive nuclear weapons in Turkey. However, as I continued, I asked Sorensen, had Kennedy not ordered those missiles out of Turkey? Sorensen, yes. And he'd been told the previous year that they were anachronistic, unreliable. And what the United States really should do is move that portion of the regional deterrent into polar, modern, Polaris nuclear submarines under the Mediterranean. They were reliable. They were powerful. And best of all, nobody could see them so they weren't provocative. But as things go in government bureaucracies, that order by Kennedy to remove them had never been fulfilled. So then we were faced with those two letters, how to answer them, what to do about the fact that the second letter was much tougher than the first. So I asked Ted, I said, I'm sorry, Ted, was there a fear perhaps a coup had taken place in Moscow? It was a big fear, folks, let me tell you, that perhaps the military would rise up against Khrushchev and take power because military-industrial complex in the Soviet Union as well as a military-industrial complex in America. Sorensen answered, there was a concern that the military presidium had in effect overruled Khrushchev and put it in this second letter with much tougher demands rather than anything in the first that hinted at a peaceful withdrawal. And finally, the wisest man around the table, other than the president, Ambassador Llewellyn Thompson, who had been our ambassador in Moscow previously, knew Khrushchev, understood him. He said, let's ignore the second letter and answer the first letter. And Bobby Kennedy, Bobby, supported that and I also did. In fact, I said there are some elements in that first letter that we can respond to positively. And the president said to me and Bobby, all right, you guys go draft it. And we went down to my office, which as I say, was just a few steps down the hall and sat there. And that was the most difficult letter I have ever written in my life. I knew if I wrote the wrong letter, if I antagonized Khrushchev, if he was upset with my ignoring, our ignoring the second letter, who knows, he might just push a button and fire those missiles. No stress here, folks. Imagine that. This is what you're up against, nuclear annihilation, if you write the wrong letter. Imagine the stress Ted Sorensen was under. I'll continue. Ted Sorensen says, in those days, the cabinet room in the White House was not a reinforced concrete bunker. Today, I'm told that it is. Those days, it wasn't. We knew that all of us sitting around that table could be sitting there in our last day on Earth if we didn't solve this problem very, very quickly. So the pressure was on me, and it was made even more by the president's brother, Bobby, sitting there, staring over my shoulder at what I was trying to write. So I asked Ted, can you take us into your thought process?
You know, words can sometimes have a double meaning, and especially if they're to be translated into Russian. The connotations of those words, Sorensen says, that's very, very true. And I said, how did you begin? Sorensen said, well, I had been, uh, I wasn't a diplomatic writer, Brent. I had never written a diplomatic letter, except for the fact that this back channel correspondence with Khrushchev had begun a year earlier. And Kennedy usually had me do first drafts for his letters to Khrushchev. In that correspondence, basically, I was a writer of speeches for Kennedy and earlier in my life as a member of the debate team in high school and in college, I wrote speeches for myself. And sitting there at that table, I remembered some advice from my high school debate teacher, Florence Jenkins. And she said, sometimes you do better in a debate by trying to adopt or adapt part of your opponent's case. And so I sat there and I took two or three of those positive elements from Khrushchev's letter the night before. I reworded them a bit our way. Ted Sorensen continues, and I would precede that by the phrase, as we understand your letter, you propose such and such a thing. And then later on, as we interpret your letter, you are proposing such and such a thing. And Khrushchev may have wondered, did I really propose that? Because I changed, for example, this is Ted talking. His positive elements could be described as, let's say, A, B, C. So I reversed that order, making it to C, B, A, to make sure that they did the things we wanted them to do before we did the things he wanted us to do, making it a little tricky, but it worked. That's brilliant, sir. This is what I said to Sorensen. You submitted the letter. Did you have any second thoughts and said, well, maybe I should have ordered it this way, that way? What was the tension like? that apprehension waiting for that response, Sorensen said. Well, first of all, I gave it to JFK, who approved it. He had me read it over the telephone to our UN ambassador, Adelaide Stevenson. He approved it. It was circulated around the cabinet table to the other members of XCOM. They approved, and then Bobby was sent off to present the letter to Soviet ambassador Dobrynin to convey to his masters in the Kremlin, but before he left, I don't know whether this is in my book or not, but before he left, yes sir, it actually is, I interrupted him, back to Sorensen, before Bobby left, the president called a few of us, mostly it was the Dove group, the ones that wanted the blockade, into his office for a private meeting, and he left the others sitting out there or getting themselves some food or whatever. And he and Secretary of State Dean Rusk gave Bobby instructions to accompany delivery of the letter with two oral messages. The first oral message. Number one, time is short. We're making the letter in a positive way, agreeing more or less with Khrushchev's letter so he should end it. And we better end it fast because you never know when the hawks will rise President's in charge of government, but we don't want the hawks to take over and start 
bombing and invading by Tuesday. This was Saturday. The second oral message that was given. The other message was, we can't in a matter of few days persuade NATO to, which acts by unanimous consent, by the way, we can't get that by Tuesday to pull out those missiles in Turkey. But because the President of the United States had previously decided to take those missiles out of Turkey, we're not going to do it at the point of a gun, in other words, blackmail or nobody will have any confidence in the United States after that. Well, Mr. Khrushchev, if that makes him feel better, can be assured that it will be done in a matter of months, if we can just get this crisis finished. Sorensen continues. So Bobby went down to Dubrunia with the letter, with those two messages, and I woke up the next morning and turned on my radio and Khrushchev was taking the missiles out. So I asked Ted, I said, even though I know the outcome of the story, I've been on the edge of my seat because that's how close we came. And every time we deal with this subject and look back on it, really, humanity was on the brink. I mean, it could have gone either way. We would not be having this conversation. I would not be looking out my studio window right now at a beautiful blue sky. We all think of 9-11, but this was bigger, I think, in many, many respects. And Ted said, well, it could have been, could have been a lot bigger because we later found out, are you ready for this, folks? Because we later found out that the additional Soviet troops that Khrushchev had put in Cuba to guard the missiles and otherwise had also, here it is, been given authority to fire tactical nuclear weapons against any American attack, whether it came from the air, from the sea, or land. And not only that, the authority you know to launch those nukes at us on their own. And had they launched the nukes at us in those mad days, I say mad, M-A-D, which means, of course, mutual assured destruction, mad was the doctrine of the day. And had they fired nukes at us, we would have returned by firing nukes. Maybe tactical weapons came our way, we would have responded with, with tactical nukes. But once both countries are on that nuclear ladder of escalation and they keep going up the ladder as they would have responded with strategic weapons, we would have responded to that with our own strategic weapons and so on and so on up the ladder until both sides have emptied their arsenals and devastated every inch of the other country. And all those nuclear explosions in the atmosphere would have produced radioactive poisons that would have circled the planet by wind, by air, by water, by soil, until scientists tell us the whole planet would have been uninhabitable for plant life, animal life, or human life. Wow. So I said to Ted, I said, also, that was really ominous. Also, something that was really ominous, sir, was the fact that you had revealed that Castro was pressing Khrushchev for a preemptive strike against the United States. I bet you weren't aware of that. 
Castro wanted to launch the weapons at the United States. True story. Here we go. Sorensen's response. Oh, yes. I shouldn't laugh when I say that, but it turns out that this is a two-prod answer. Have you got time? Absolutely. It's Ted Sorensen. Hello. <laughs> First part. First is, believe it or not, due to some initiatives taken by Harvard and Brown academics, universities, participants in the Cuban Missile Crisis from the United States, Russia, Cuba, had reunions to meet and talk about the lessons of such a crisis and how to prevent it from ever coming close again. We had one of those in this country. We had at least one in Moscow. We had at least one in Cuba. And then we had another one in Cuba on the 40th anniversary in the, of the crisis in 2002. And I attended. And Castro was there, as active as ever, not quite as healthy as the first time I met him, which was in 1977. He invited the American delegation to lunch. And that was quite a friendly affair, a certain amount of banter and some toasts. So I rose to give a toast because by that time it had turned out that on that same Saturday, October 27th, 1962, when we thought everything was dark and disastrous, Castro thought that it was too. And he had called the Soviet ambassador to Havana and dictated a letter to him that he wanted to send to Khrushchev, saying he, Castro, thought the Americans were about to attack and he wanted Khrushchev to order those missiles fired and eliminate this scourge from the face of the earth. Let me read that again. This is important. He wrote a letter to the ambassador in Havana to give to Khrushchev that said, the Americans were about to attack and he wanted Khrushchev to order the missiles fired and eliminate this scourge, the United States, from the face of the earth. That's how close we were. Are you getting this, folks? This is how close we were. But Ted saved the day. I'm going to continue. Ted Sorensen. So at the lunch, I arose to make a toast, but I chastised Castro for referring to the U.S. as the scourge of the earth and ordering us to be wiped out. Now, that man needed an interpreter to speak to us, but he understood English. He heard what I was saying, and halfway through, he interrupted me and said, that's because I thought you were about to attack. I resumed my toast to say that, yes, I understood his motivation for sending that letter, calling us such names, but in fact, I was glad he had sent the letter. You ready for this? Because that letter even more important than the letter I had drafted, helped convince Khrushchev that he had made a big mistake, that things were getting dangerously out of hand. Because on that very morning, early October 27, 1962, his troops had shot down the American U-2 plane flying, Mrs. Colonel Anderson was shot down, and pilot flying over Cuba, by the way, that colonel, same colonel, was the first one that flew over Cuba and got those pictures. And this was very, very dangerous, folks. I'll tell you why. When that U-2 plane went down, the military wanted to go in and take out the sites, the SAM sites, surface-to-air missiles, that had taken that plane out. Had they done that, they would have killed Soviet technicians. Had they have done that, the Soviets would have retaliated, probably in Cuba, uh, I'm sorry, probably in Berlin, and then 
what Ted was talking about before, which you had mentioned that ladder, and just scaling right up the ladder to nuclear holocaust. Okay, I continue. The American plane and pilot flying over Cuba, he had not authorized that. Khrushchev had not authorized that. That was made by local command. And they had that same ability to launch the nuclear weapons. Things were getting completely out of control. All you need is somebody nervous and saying, that's it, the Americans are attacking when a spy plane goes over. There goes the whole ball game, right? I continue with Sorensen. And the combination made him feel that everything was getting out of control. And so I said to Castro at that luncheon in 2002, I'm glad you sent that letter. Number two, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, American U-2 planes kept up a steady stream of reconnaissance overflights of Cuba, looking for more missile sites via the photos they were taking. It was a dangerous but essential intelligence gathering method, so the Kennedy administration would know precisely what they were up against in Cuba and respond accordingly. On Saturday, October 27, 1962, a U-2 was shot down over Cuba by two SA-2 guideline surface-to-air missiles, killing the pilot, Major Rudolf Anderson. No one at the time was sure who had ordered the U-2 shot down from inside Cuba, whether it was directly ordered by Castro, thus an open declaration of war, or a local commander worrying about his own career if he took no action, or even a Soviet commander inside Cuba. When the American military found out, they wanted to go in and attack Cuba. Could you imagine that? The missiles were ready to go. Had they done that, that would have been it. They would have been launched at the States. Do we see a problem here? Do we see a problem? Who owns YouTube? Google. YouTube controls Google. They're the same entity. They decide what is going to be searched and revealed in their search engines. This is policy. This is how they're trying to control what you see and what you don't see. And this is dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because 95% of millennials use YouTube only as their source of information. 95% of millennials use YouTube only as their source of information. So now you've got one entity, the biggest entity in the world, Google, controlling what you can't and can't see. They won't take my videos down, but they won't allow them to be monetized. And when those ads run under them, that everybody complains and bitches about, oh, you got so many ads. Yeah, for every 10,000 views, I get a dollar. <laughs> Hello? So it's not for the money I'm doing this. This is a volunteer show, literally, at this point. Make a donation. I need your help. I go back to Sorensen. JFK, with nerves of steel and a vision for the future, said no, that it could have been just an accident, and said they would wait for confirmation of how the plane was downed and why. Thank God he did. Thank God he did so this thing could be resolved. Now here's a part many of you are probably unaware of, and this was terrifying during this whole, whole experience. 
So you've got the hawks on one side, which is the military primarily, and you've got the doves who wanted the blockade on the other side. So the military wanted to go in, obviously, to remove the weapons of mass destruction, also known as nuclear weapons, as my mind blanks, out of Cuba permanently and take over the Castro regime. So they were pushing to go in and have a military action. Now, the consequences of that have already gone over time and time again. Would have been an automatic retaliation in Berlin. Then we would have retaliated because of that. And right up the, the ladder to nuclear holocaust. It would not have been preventable. There's no way it could have been kept to a non-nuclear combat theater because we just didn't have enough troops in Germany and Berlin to combat the takeover of the country by the Soviet Union. The defensive plans for Germany included small tactical nuclear weapons. Once we started using nuclear weapons, they would have used bigger ones, would have been the end of Germany, and then, of course, we launch ours, they launch their. It's a no-win scenario. So when you hear somebody saying, oh, yeah, we're going to nuke North Korea, think twice about it, okay? You think North Korea is on the border with the Soviet Union and China. Do you think they're going to invite nuclear weapons to bomb right next to them without retaliation? This is why I'm telling you this stuff, folks. We have to look at the past to avoid the future, <laughs> to avoid the same type of crises in the future. We have to be able to think our way out of these problems, not shoot our way out of these problems. Fear of a military coup in the United States. So I asked Ted, you had alluded to a fear that perhaps the Hawks, the military, could take over in this and this will be my final question for the Cuban Missile Crisis, by the way. Was there a real threat of that fear running through the administration that perhaps a coup could take place in the United States? Ted answered very ominously, folks. Are you ready for this? There had been, at the very same time, at the very same period, a very good movie called Seven Days in May, and that was by John Frankenheimer. You can find that actually on YouTube. You can watch it. It starred Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. Great movie. Terrific movie. So this was the movie, this was the mood at the time, if you will, which was total fiction about a U.S. Army takeover of the White House based on a good book. It was a good movie, and we used to joke about the movie, whether it could happen here. Getting ominous now. It was no joke. This is where it gets scary, folks. It was no joke when the Joint Chiefs, before that first week was over, demanded a session with Kennedy. Because unlike the movie 13 Days, you can look up that movie too, Kev Costner's in it, fantastic job at the Cuban Missile Crisis. Unlike the movie 13 Days, they did not attend our daily, nightly XCOM meetings, except for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Maxwell Taylor, who is not a wild man like some of the chiefs were. He was, on the contrary, very scholarly, very reasonable. And I interrupted him. I said, and handpicked by Kennedy, wasn't he? So here's a little background, an aside, on General Maxwell Taylor. General Maxwell Taylor was an accomplished four-star general with a solid background in diplomacy. He had commanded the famed 101st Airborne in World War II and parachuted with his men into Normandy on D-Day, 
He was the first general on the ground. Taylor, like Kennedy during the Eisenhower administration in the 50s, thought that Eisenhower's heavy reliance on nuclear weapons for the defense of the United States left far too few options to be used in case of war. Taylor, also like Kennedy, feared that any conflict, no matter how minor, would quickly escalate into nuclear holocaust, and he was right. As a consequence of his thinking on nuclear weapons and the need for a wider range of conventional options, he was JFK's first choice for Joint Chief of Staff when JFK fired General Lyman Lewis Lemnitzer for his role in the Bay of Pigs. It is well worth noting that it was JFK who created the Green Berets and the use of special forces to carry out essential military operations on a stealthy scale. The special forces would later branch out to the SEALs, as we know, Delta, etc., etc. It's also worth noting that not only was Taylor handpicked by Kennedy, but that he and Bobby Kennedy became so close as friends that Bobby named one of his children after him. So, the threat of a coup was never from General Taylor, nor would he have stood for it if one had taken place by Lyndon Johnson or anyone else. Neither would have Ted Sorensen, CI Director John McCone, also handpicked by Kennedy, don't forget, his brother Bobby, his brother Ted, who was a senator, or any of his aides. I'll talk more about that later in a different chapter about why a coup d'etat was not the reason for the assassination nor the cover-up. Back to Ted Sorensen. Handpicked by Kennedy, yeah, referring to Maxwell Taylor. Anyway, when the Joint Chiefs met with Kennedy, Curtis LeMay, <laughs> a man who believed in nuclear war because he thought even if we suffered hundreds of thousands or millions of deaths, the Russians would suffer even more. So he... That was Curtis LeMay. That's what he called his victory in war. What a mentality, eh, folks? What a mentality. Back to Sorensen. And he lectured Kennedy on what he thought the quarantine, the combination of diplomacy and the blockade, was too weak a response. And the American people wouldn't like it. Can you imagine a military chief lecturing the President of the United States on what the American people think? Sorensen continues, when Kennedy finally left that meeting and went out into the hall, he ran into me, and he was so upset, and he said to me, bear in mind, this is Friday the 19th, he said to me, he pointed to that room and he said, they're all getting things in worse shape, he said to me, you and Bobby have got to get this finished soon. But it turned out that he had left his tape recorder going when he left the room, yeah, not by accident, I don't think, folks. I don't think so. Kennedy was far too sly for that. I think he really wanted to get on tape what was going on behind closed doors with the military-industrial complex. So let me repeat this, okay? He had left the room. The Joint Chiefs are in there, all of them, sitting around the table. He's got a microphone under the table recording the conversation. Back to Sorensen. But it turned out that he left his tape recorder going when he left the room. And we have recorded for history the book called The Kennedy Tapes, Inside the White House During the Cuban Missile Crisis. And what LeMay and the Marine Commander David Shoup 
and some others had to say with Kennedy out of the room was pretty close to treasonous and blasting him. And I am told that when Khrushchev finally pulled the missiles out of Cuba without the United States firing a shot, not only was Castro upset that he hadn't been consulted, but the Joint Chiefs of Staff were upset that they didn't have their chance for a war. But John F. Kennedy was a strong and beloved president. I don't think there was ever a serious chance that the civilian control of the military, which is a fundamental principle of American government, I don't think there was a serious chance of that being overturned at the time. Now, this is the actual transcript I'm going to read from, folks, of that tape recording that I had just remembered, that I just mentioned that Kennedy left the tape recorder running when he left the room. This is Friday morning, October 19th, 1963. General LeMay, he's condescending, he's superior, he's untouchable, and he says, if we don't do anything to Cuba, then they're going to push on Berlin and push real hard because they've got us on the run. This blockade and political action, I see it leading into war. This is almost as bad as the appeasement at Munich. Now, this is a personal shot LeMay's taking at President Kennedy. LeMay knew full well that President Kennedy's father, Joe Kennedy, had been the United States ambassador in England during the Second World War. Ambassador Joe Kennedy's attitude was that Hitler would win any war in Europe and that the United States should stay out of another European conflict and should push Great Britain to get any peace accord with the Nazis that Hitler would offer. Joe Kennedy supported then Britain's Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's initiative to give Hitler essentially whatever countries he sought. This is called the Munich appeasement, by the way, folks, in order to appease Hitler and the Nazis and keep Great Britain out of another war with Germany. In other words, throw your friends and allies under the bus to save your own skin. This was Joe Kennedy's perspective. He took the appeasement route. It is worth noting that a young John Kennedy thought any appeasement of the Nazis was the wrong thing to do. General LeMay continues, I just don't see any other solution except direct military action right now. A blockade and political talk would be considered a lot of our friends and neutrals as being a pretty weak response and I'm sure a lot of our own citizens would feel that way, too. You're in a pretty bad fix, Mr. President. President Kennedy, no hesitation, challenging, angry, confrontational. What did you say? You're in a pretty bad fix. Yeah, you're in it with me. The meeting wraps up and President Kennedy leaves, but forgets, quote unquote. Remember, I said he forgot. That his tape recorder is still running. I'm sure he forgot. The following is caught on tape for all time, unbeknownst to the generals. If this is any indication of what has been said behind the president's back and the sanctity of the White House, one can only imagine what is contemplated behind closed doors by the generals outside the White House. General Shoup, kissing LeMay's butt, bold in the absence of President Kennedy, big man. You pulled the rug right out from under him. God damn. General LeMay sarcastically playing along, playing innocent. Jesus Christ, what the hell do you mean? General Shoup, big and brave with the commander-in-chief, is absent, bold talk, posturing for LeMay. This is what he says. 
Somebody's got to keep them from doing the goddamn thing piecemeal. That's our problem. Do the son of a bitch and do it right. Now, just to reiterate how close it was we came to nuclear holocaust and the end of the world, for real, the following I'm going to read is taken from actual tape recordings of Jacqueline Kennedy from the book Jacqueline Kennedy Historic Conversations on Life with John F. Kennedy. During an alarmed phone call from President Kennedy to Jacqueline Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy describing her husband's anxiety during the call. There's something funny in his voice. President Kennedy's just called Jackie. JFK says to Jackie, please bring the children right now back to the White House. Jackie, alarmed at the unprecedented request made by her husband to wake the children, even though they were taking naps. Jackie said to JFK, please, don't send me away to Camp David. You know me and the children. Please don't send me anywhere. If anything happens, we're all going to stay right here with you. Even if there's not room in the bomb shelter in the White House, please, then I just want to be on the lawn when it happens. You know, I just want to be with you, and I want to die with you, and the children do too. Then live without you. That's how close we were, folks. That's how close we were. Bring the children right now back to the White House. I think we're all going to die together. In the White House in those days, it was just that a bomb shelter, not a nuclear-proof shelter like there is now. There would have been no time to get on a helicopter or anything else to escape the few minutes it would take if Castro launched. Five minutes. Both Jacqueline and President Kennedy believed the end was nigh and they wanted to die together with their children by their side. Think of that scenario today. Think of that scenario with President Barack Obama. That's how close we came. Ted passed away on October 31st, 2010. I had interviewed him September 18th. This was his last interview for all time. And he unloaded folks and he confirmed conspiracy. He named, not names, but agencies. And I'll get to that in my documentary. As I said before, I'm doing a documentary, a full, complete documentary on, on all this, what Ted told me, because I filmed the whole thing. If you donate at my website for $100 or more, you will be in the credits as a producer, bar none. This is historic. This is going to be around forever. It's a lasting legacy of American history of the most crucial times. The President Kennedy administration, everything about civil rights, everything about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the assassination and confirmation that there was a conspiracy. If you put your name on this, it'll be there forever. hundred bucks will get you that. Thank you so much for that. Okay. The epilogue. Ted passed away on October 31st, 2010, after taking a stroke only two weeks previously, folks, just after getting off the phone with the White House. Now, I was deeply moved and honored to have been invited to Mr. Sorensen's memorial in New York City in 2010, and I went down there, I drove down there, very solemn event where I met those who rose to immortalize Ted on a personal level. I met Carolyn, I met Kofi Annan, I met Bill Moyers and more, his sons, his wife, senators were there. 
Barack Obama was not there. Something had occurred that he could not make it, but he sent a beautiful, beautiful telegram with beautiful words on it that was read out. It was a very, very poignant memorial to Ted Sorensen in New York City. What Ted had meant to the country and how he had saved the world. It seems Ted had indeed changed them, as I have also changed since my talks with Ted. What he offered us, folks, is dialogue before bullets. Dialogue before bullets. Ted told me, he said, you know, we knew we could always overtake the Soviets and attack the Soviets. How were we going to get out of the war by using our thinking heads instead of using our gunboat diplomacy? How were we going to get out of the conflict by using dialogue instead of using bullets? Because the time is nigh and the night beckons. Today, folks, the world struggles through similar times of life or death battles. Decisions race across the internet instantaneously with little or no time for reflection. The world, it seems, littered with those that entertain murder and death as the ultimate glory and servitude to God. I can only hope that by reading the above, that the next person responsible for deciding to end the world or not will have received a small inclination of how to resolve a mass extinction event scenario and perhaps take a moment to reflect because the time is nigh and the night beckons. Ted Sorensen, folks, the man who saved the world. Just another word about YouTube. YouTube, folks, probably won't monetize this show because we talk about war. There's a big problem with YouTube going on right now. Huge problem, and it's very dangerous. Let me give you some statistics. When I looked up the Holocaust on Google, Google owns YouTube, by the way, most popular search engine in the history of the world, I could find no YouTube links. Everything that was associated with the Holocaust in terms of videos led back to Jewish websites. They led to the Smithsonian, things of that nature, Holocaust memorial centers, things of that nature. Nothing on YouTube. When I looked up the JFK assassination, the same thing happened. There was very few, there was none actually for the first five pages, any YouTube videos listing the JFK assassination on the first five pages of the Google search engine. Why is that? Well, as it turns out, they're trying to appease YouTube. They're trying to appease the advertisers by taking anything that they deem, they deem, not us, they deem controversial. So anything to do with terrorism, talking about terrorism I'm talking about, okay, or the Holocaust. I interviewed Lydia Reich, who was a Holocaust survivor who befriended Anne Frank in the camps. They will not monetize that. Now, let me clarify what monetization means. You know those little ads? Yeah, everybody thinks you make a million dollars off these things. No. Every 10,000 views, okay? Every 10,000 views, you get a dollar. You get a dollar. <laughs> okay? I don't, you know, I, I may make 10,000 views in a month, maybe. So I get a dollar a month. Isn't that wonderful, right? Yeah. So w when you make your comments saying, oh, you, you know, you're making millions, you're going to the bank, <laughs> stick it. That's all I got to say. It is dangerous because 95% of millennials use YouTube alone 
for their source of information. So now you've got YouTube, Google, controlling what they can and can't see. Very dangerous. Please make that donation. Keep me on air, and I'll keep bringing these shows to you for a buck a month. <laughs> I'm Brent Holland from The Brent Holland Show. Thank you all for joining me for these three wonderful, wonderful shows on my good friend, Ted Sorensen and How We Saved the World. See you next time. Take care of each other out there. tumultuous times you've gone through your whole life has been one of bringing peace to the world it's the only, I can't describe it any other way the idealism that I guess brought you and that it, and Mr. Kennedy together I think that was probably what he saw in you and what you saw in him was that spark I, of idealism I think you were absolutely right there but not too many of uh discerned of that, but I think that's exactly right. You're virtually the fellow that saved the world with that letter to Khrushchev. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. I hope some people realize that. In the American University yes. Address, when he says, the world knows America will never start a war, then his next sentence was, this generation of Americans has seen enough of war. He meant himself. He'd seen enough of war. You knew General LeMay. General LeMay thought we could win him nuclear war. The chief of naval operations who wanted to take Kennedy's restrained passive blockade and have those destroyers which are in the ring around Cuba go out and look for Russian ships and shoot them. Did Kennedy trust the CIA? Not after the Bay of Pigs. This country was changed by in all kinds of harmful ways, both domestically and internationally by uh, the loss of John F. Kennedy. And without inviting a lot of new questions, because I won't answer them, we're all going to learn more this year about why he was... Do we see a problem here? Do we see a problem? Who owns YouTube? Google. YouTube controls Google, they're the same entity. They decide what is going to be searched and revealed in their search engines. This is policy, this is how they're trying to control what you see and what you don't see. And this is dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because 95% of millennials use YouTube only as their source of information. 95% of millennials use YouTube only as their source of information. So now you've got one entity, the biggest entity in the world, Google, controlling what you can't and can't see.
They won't take my videos down, but they won't allow them to be monetized. And when those ads run under them, that everybody complains and bitches about, oh, you got so many ads. Yeah, for every 10,000 views, I get a dollar. <laughs> Hello. So it's not for the money I'm doing this. This is a volunteer show, literally, at this point. Make a donation. I need your help.